Never flinch, never weary, never despair. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Speech given by Winston Churchill to the House of Commons, 1st of March, 1955. I beg to move that this House approves the Statement on Defence, 1955, Command Paper, number 9391. This motion stands in my name, and it is supported by my right honourable friends, the Foreign Secretary, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, and the Minister of Defence. We live in a period, happily unique in human history, when the whole world is divided intellectually, and to a large extent geographically, between the creeds of communist discipline and individual freedom, and when, at the same time, this mental and psychological division is accompanied by the possession by both sides of the obliterating weapons of the nuclear age. We have antagonisms now, as deep as those of the Reformation and its reactions, which led to the Thirty Years' War. But now they are spread over the whole world, instead of only over a small part of Europe. We have, to some extent, the geographical division of the Mongol invasion in the thirteenth century, only more ruthless and more thorough. We have force and science, hitherto the servants of man, now threatening to become his master. I am not pretending to have a solution for a permanent peace between the nations which could be unfolded this afternoon. We pray for it. Nor shall I try to discuss the Cold War which we all detest, but have to endure. I shall only venture to offer to the House some observations mainly of a general character, on which I have pondered long, and which I hope may be tolerantly received as they are intended by me. And here may I venture to make a personal digression. I do not pretend to be an expert, or to have technical knowledge of this prodigious sphere of science. But in my long friendship with Lord Cherwell I have tried to follow, and even predict, the evolution of events. I hope that the House will not reprove me for vanity or conceit, if I repeat what I wrote a quarter of a century ago. We know enough to be sure that the scientific achievements of the next fifty years will be far greater, more rapid, and more surprising than those we have already experienced. High authorities tell us that new sources of power, vastly more important than any we yet know, will surely be discovered. Nuclear energy is incomparably greater than the molecular energy which we use today. The coal a man can get in a day can easily do five hundred times as much work as the man himself. Nuclear energy is at least one million times more powerful still. If the hydrogen atoms in a pound of water could be prevailed upon to combine together and form helium, they would suffice to drive a 1,000-horsepower engine for a whole year. If the electrons, those tiny planets of the atomic systems, were induced to combine with the nuclei in the hydrogen, 
the horsepower liberated would be one hundred and twenty times greater still. There is no question among scientists that this gigantic source of energy exists. What is lacking is the match to set the bonfire alight, or it may be the detonator to cause the dynamite to explode. This is, no doubt, not quite an accurate description of what has been discovered, but as it was published in the Strand magazine of December 1931, twenty-four years ago, I hope that my plea to have long taken an interest in the subject may be indulgently accepted by the House. What is the present position? Only three countries possess, in varying degrees, the knowledge and the power to make nuclear weapons. Of these, the United States is overwhelmingly the chief. Owing to the breakdown in the exchange of information between us and the United States since 1946, we have had to start again independently on our own. Fortunately, executive action was taken promptly by the Right Honourable Gentleman, the Leader of the Opposition, to reduce as far as possible the delay in our nuclear development and production. By his initiative, we have made our own atomic bombs. Confronted with the hydrogen bomb, I have tried to live up to the Right Honourable Gentleman's standard. We have started to make that one, too. It is this grave decision which forms the core of the defence paper which we are discussing this afternoon. Although the Soviet stockpile of atomic bombs may be greater than that of Britain, British discoveries may well place us above them in fundamental science. May I say that for the sake of simplicity and to avoid verbal confusion, I use the expression atomic bombs and also hydrogen bombs instead of thermonuclear, and I keep nuclear for the whole lot. There is an immense gulf between the atomic and the hydrogen bomb. The atomic bomb, with all its terrors, did not carry us outside the scope of human control, or manageable events in thought or action, in peace or war. But when Mr. Sterling Cole, the chairman of the United States Congressional Committee, gave out a year ago, 17 February 1954, the first comprehensive review of the hydrogen bomb, the entire foundation of human affairs was revolutionised, and mankind placed in a situation both measureless and laden with doom. It is now the fact that a quantity of plutonium, probably less than would fill the box on the table, it is quite a safe thing to store, would suffice to produce weapons which would give indisputable world domination to any great power which was the only one to have it. There is no absolute defence against the hydrogen bomb, nor is any method in sight by which any nation or any country can be completely guaranteed against the devastating injury which even a score of them might inflict on wide regions. What ought we to do? Which way shall we turn to save our lives and the future of the world? It does not matter so much to old people. They are going soon, anyway. But I find it poignant 
to look at youth in all its activity and ardour, and, most of all, to watch little children playing their merry games, and wonder what would lie before them if God wearied of mankind. The best defence would, of course, be bona fide disarmament all round. This is in all our hearts. But sentiment must not cloud our vision. It is often said that facts are stubborn things. A renewed session of a subcommittee of the Disarmament Commission is now sitting in London, and is rightly attempting to conduct its debates in private. We must not conceal from ourselves the gulf between the Soviet government and the NATO powers, which has hitherto for so long prevented an agreement. The long history and tradition of Russia makes it repugnant to the Soviet government to accept any practical system of international inspection. A second difficulty lies in the circumstance that, just as the United States on the one hand has, we believe, the overwhelming mastery in nuclear weapons, so the Soviets and their communist satellites have immense superiority in what are called conventional forces, the sort of arms and forces with which we fought the last war, but much improved. The problem is, therefore, to devise a balanced and phased system of disarmament which at no period enables any one of the participants to enjoy an advantage which might endanger the security of the others. A scheme on these lines was submitted last year by Her Majesty's Government and the French Government, and was accepted by the late Mr. Fischinski as a basis of discussion. It is now being examined in London. If the Soviet government have not at any time since the war shown much nervousness about the American possession of nuclear superiority, that is because they are quite sure that it will not be used against them aggressively, even in spite of many forms of provocation. On the other hand, the NATO powers have been combined together by the continued aggression and advance of communism in Asia and in Europe. That this should have eclipsed in a few years and largely effaced the fearful antagonism and memories that Hitlerism created for the German people is an event without parallel. But it has, to a large extent, happened. There is widespread belief throughout the free world that but for American nuclear superiority, Europe would already have been reduced to satellite status, and the Iron Curtain would have reached the Atlantic and the Channel. Unless a trustworthy and universal agreement upon disarmament, conventional and nuclear alike, can be reached, and an effective system of inspection is established and is actually working, there is only one sane policy for the free world in the next few years. That is what we call defence through deterrence. This we have already adopted and proclaimed. These deterrents may at any time become the parents of disarmament, provided that they deter. To make our contribution to the deterrent, we must ourselves possess the most up-to-date nuclear weapons, and the means of delivering them. 
That is the position which the government occupy. We are to discuss this not only as a matter of principle. There are many practical reasons which should be given. Should war come, which God forbid, there are a large number of targets that we and the Americans must be able to strike at once. There are scores of airfields from which the Soviets could launch attacks with hydrogen bombs as soon as they have the bombers to carry them. It is essential to our deterrent policy and to our survival to have, with our American allies, the strength and numbers to be able to paralyse these potential communist assaults in the first few hours of the war, should it come. The House will perhaps note that I avoid using the word Russia as much as possible in this discussion. I have a strong admiration for the Russian people, for their bravery, their many gifts, and their kindly nature. It is the communist dictatorship, and the declared ambition of the Communist Party and their proselytising activities that we are bound to resist, and that is what makes this great world cleavage which I mentioned when I opened my remarks. There are also big administrative and industrial targets behind the Iron Curtain, and any effective deterrent policy must have the power to paralyse them all at the outset or shortly after. There are also the Soviet submarine bases and other naval targets which will need early attention. Unless we make a contribution of our own, that is the point which I am pressing, we cannot be sure that in an emergency the resources of other powers would be planned exactly as we would wish, or that the targets which would threaten us most would be given what we consider the necessary priority or the deserved priority in the first few hours. These targets might be of such cardinal importance that it would really be a matter of life and death for us. All this, I think, must be borne in mind in deciding our policy about the conventional forces, to which I will come later, the existing services. Meanwhile, the United States has many times the nuclear power of Soviet Russia. I avoid any attempt to give exact figures, and they have, of course, far more effective means of delivery. Our moral and military support of the United States, and our possession of nuclear weapons of the highest quality and on an appreciable scale, together with their means of delivery, will greatly reinforce the deterrent power of the free world, and will strengthen our influence within the free world. That, at any rate, is the policy we have decided to pursue. That is what we are now doing, and I am thankful that it is endorsed by a mass of responsible opinion on both sides of the House, and, I believe, by the great majority of the nation. A vast quantity of information, some true, some exaggerated much out of proportion, has been published about the hydrogen bomb. The truth has inevitably been mingled with fiction, and I am glad to say that panic has not occurred. Panic would not necessarily make for peace. That is one reason why I have been most anxious that responsible discussions on this matter should not take place on the BBC 
or upon the television, and I thought that I was justified in submitting that view of Her Majesty's Government to the authorities, which they at once accepted, very willingly accepted. Panic would not necessarily make for peace, even in this country. There are many countries where a certain wave of opinion may arise and swing so furiously into action that decisive steps may be taken from which there is no recall. As it is, the world population goes on its daily journey, despite its sombre impression and earnest longing for relief. That is the way we are going on now. I shall content myself with saying about the power of this weapon, the hydrogen bomb, that apart from all the statements about blast and heat effects over increasingly wide areas, there are now to be considered the consequences of fallout, as it is called, of wind-borne radioactive particles. There is both an immediate direct effect on human beings who are in the path of such a cloud, and an indirect effect through animals, grass and vegetables, which pass on these contagions to human beings through food. This would confront many who escape the direct effects of the explosion with poisoning or starvation or both. Imagination stands appalled. There are, of course, the palliatives and precautions of a courageous civil defence, and about that the Home Secretary will be speaking later on tonight. But our best protection lies, as I am sure the House will be convinced, in successful deterrence, operating from a foundation of sober, calm, and tireless vigilance. Moreover, a curious paradox has emerged. Let me put it simply. After a certain point has been passed, it may be said, the worse things get, the better. The broad effect of the latest developments is to spread almost indefinitely, and at least to a vast extent, the area of mortal danger. This should certainly increase the deterrent upon Soviet Russia by putting her enormous spaces and scattered population on an equality or near-equality of vulnerability with our small, densely populated island, and with Western Europe. I cannot regard this development as adding to our dangers. We have reached the maximum already. On the contrary, to this form of attack, continents are vulnerable as well as islands. Hitherto, crowded countries, as I have said, like the United Kingdom and Western Europe, have had this outstanding vulnerability to carry. But the hydrogen bomb, with its vast range of destruction, and the even wider area of contamination, would be effective also against nations whose population hitherto has been so widely dispersed over large land areas as to make them feel that they were not in any danger at all. They, too, become highly vulnerable, not yet equally, perhaps, but still highly and increasingly vulnerable. Here again we see the value of deterrence, immune against surprise, and well understood by all persons on both sides, I repeat, on both sides, who have the power to control events. 
That is why I have hoped for a long time for a top-level conference where these matters could be put plainly and bluntly, from one friendly visitor to the conference to another. Then it may well be that we shall, by a process of sublime irony, have reached a stage in this story where safety will be the sturdy child of terror, and survival the twin brother of annihilation. Although the Americans have developed weapons capable of producing all the effects I have mentioned, we believe that the Soviets, so far, have tested by explosion only a type of bomb of intermediate power. There is no reason why, however, they should not develop some time within the next four, three, or even two years, more advanced weapons, and full means to deliver them on North American targets. Indeed, there is every reason to believe that within that period they will. In trying to look ahead like this, we must be careful ourselves to avoid the error of comparing the present state of our preparations with the stage which the Soviets may reach in three or four years' time. It is a major error of thought to contrast the Soviet position three or four years hence with our own position today. It is a mistake to do this either in the comparatively precise details of aircraft development or in the measureless sphere of nuclear weapons. The threat of hydrogen attack on these islands lies in the future. It is not with us now. According to the information that I have been able to obtain, I have taken every opportunity to consult all the highest authorities at our disposal. The only country which is able to deliver today a full-scale nuclear attack with hydrogen bombs at a few hours' notice is the United States. That surely is an important fact, and from some points of view, and to some of us, it is not entirely without comfort. It is conceivable that Soviet Russia, fearing a nuclear attack before she has caught up with the United States and created deterrence of her own, as she might argue that they are, might attempt to bridge the gulf by a surprise attack with such nuclear weapons as she has already. American superiority in nuclear weapons, reinforced by Britain, must, therefore, be so organised as to make it clear that no such surprise attack would prevent immediate retaliation on a far larger scale. This is an essential of the deterrent policy. For this purpose, not only must the nuclear superiority of the Western powers be stimulated in every possible way, but their means of delivery of bombs must be expanded, improved, and varied. It is even probable, though we have not been told about it outside the NATO sphere, that a great deal of this has been already done by the United States. We should aid them in every possible way. I will not attempt to go into details, but it is known that bases have been and are being established in as many parts of the world as possible, and that over all the rest the United States Strategic Air Force, which is in itself a deterrent of the highest order, is in ceaseless readiness. The Soviet government probably knows in general terms of the policy that is being pursued, and of the present United States' strength 
and our own growing addition to it. Thus they should be convinced that a surprise attack could not exclude immediate retaliation. As one might say to them, although you might kill millions of our peoples, and cause widespread havoc by a surprise attack, we could, within a few hours of this outrage, certainly deliver several, indeed many times, the weight of nuclear material which you have used, and continue retaliation on that same scale. We have, we could say, already hundreds of bases for attack, from all angles, and have made an intricate study of suitable targets. Thus, it seems to me, with some experience of wartime talks, you might go to dinner and have a friendly evening. I should not be afraid to talk things over as far as they can be. This and the hard facts would make the deterrent effective. I must make one admission, and any admission is formidable. The deterrent does not cover the case of lunatics or dictators in the mood of Hitler when he found himself in his final dugout. That is a blank. Happily, we may find methods of protecting ourselves, if we were all agreed, against that. All these considerations lead me to believe that, on a broad view, the Soviets would be ill-advised to embark on major aggression within the next three or four years. One must always consider the interests of other people when you are facing a particular situation. Their interests may be the only guide that is available. We may calculate, therefore, that world war will not break out within that time. If at the end of that time there should be a supreme conflict, the weapons which I have described this afternoon would be available to both sides, and it would be folly to suppose that they would not be used. Our precautionary dispositions and preparations must, therefore, be based on the assumption that, if war should come, these weapons would be used. I repeat, therefore, that during the next three or four years the free world should, and will, retain an overwhelming superiority in hydrogen weapons. During that period it is most unlikely that the Russians would deliberately embark on major war, or attempt a surprise attack, either of which would bring down upon them at once a crushing weight of nuclear retaliation. In three or four years' time, it may be even less, the scene will be changed. The Soviets will probably stand possessed of hydrogen bombs, and the means of delivering them, not only on the United Kingdom, but also on North American targets. They may then have reached a stage, not indeed of parity with the United States and Britain, but of what is called saturation. I must explain this term of art. Saturation in this connection means the point where, although one power is stronger than the other, perhaps much stronger, both are capable of inflicting crippling or quasi-mortal injury on the other with what they have got. It does not follow, however, that the risk of war will then be greater. Indeed, it is arguable that it will be less, for both sides will then realise that global war would result in mutual annihilation. 
Major war of the future will differ, therefore, from anything we have known in the past, in this one significant respect, that each side at the outset will suffer what it dreads the most, the loss of everything that it has ever known of. The deterrents will grow continually in value. In the past, an aggressor has been tempted by the hope of snatching an early advantage. In future, he may be deterred by the knowledge that the other side has the certain power to inflict swift, inescapable and crushing retaliation. Of course, we should all agree that a worldwide international agreement on disarmament is the goal at which we should aim. The Western democracies disarmed themselves at the end of the war. The Soviet government did not disarm, and the Western nations were forced to rearm, though only partially, after the Soviets and Communists had dominated all China and half Europe. That is the present position. It is easy, of course, for the Communists to say now, let us ban all nuclear weapons. Communist ascendancy in conventional weapons would then become overwhelming. That might bring peace, but only peace in the form of the subjugation of the free world to the Communist system. I shall not detain the House very much longer, and I am sorry to be so long. The topic is very intricate. I am anxious to repeat and to emphasise the one word which is the theme of my remarks, namely, deterrent. That is the main theme. The hydrogen bomb has made an astounding incursion into the structure of our lives and thoughts. Its impact is prodigious and profound. But I do not agree with those who say, let us sweep away forthwith all our existing defence services and concentrate our energy and resources on nuclear weapons and their immediate ancillaries. The policy of the deterrent cannot rest on nuclear weapons alone. We must, together with our NATO allies, maintain the defensive shield in Western Europe. Unless the NATO powers had effective forces there on the ground and could make a front, there would be nothing to prevent piecemeal advance and encroachment by the Communists in this time of so-called peace. By successive infiltrations, the Communists could progressively undermine the security of Europe. Unless we were prepared to unleash a full-scale nuclear war as soon as some local incident occurs in some distant country, we must have conventional forces in readiness to deal with such situations as they arise. We must, therefore, honour our undertaking to maintain our contribution to the NATO forces in Europe in time of peace. In war, this defensive shield would be of vital importance, for we must do our utmost to hold the Soviet and satellite forces at arm's length, in order to prevent short-range air and rocket attack on these islands. Thus, substantial strength in conventional forces has still a vital part to play in the policy of the deterrent. It is perhaps of even greater importance in the Cold War. Though world war may be prevented by the deterrent power of nuclear weapons, the Communists may well resort to military action 
in furtherance of their policy of infiltration and encroachment in many parts of the world. There may well be limited wars on the Korean model, with limited objectives. We must be able to play our part in these if called upon by the United Nations organization. In the conditions of today, this is also an aspect of our Commonwealth's responsibility. We shall need substantial strength in conventional forces to fulfil our worldwide obligations in these days of uneasy peace and extreme bad temper. To sum up this part of the argument, of course the development of nuclear weapons will affect the shape and organisation of the armed forces and also of civil defence. We have entered a period of transition in which the past and the future will overlap. But it is an error to suppose that because of these changes our traditional forces can be cast away or superseded. The tasks of the army, navy and air force in this transition period are set forth with clarity in the defence white paper. The means by which these duties will be met are explained in more detail in the departmental papers which have been laid before the House by the three service ministers. No doubt nothing is perfect. Certainly nothing is complete. But considering that these arrangements have been made in the first year after the apparition of the hydrogen bomb, the far-seeing and progressive adaptability which is being displayed by all three services is remarkable. I understand that there is to be a motion of censure. Well, certainly, nothing could be more worthy of censure than to try to use the inevitable administrative difficulties of the transitional stage as a utensil of party politics and would-be electioneering. I am not saying that any one is doing it. We shall see when it comes to the vote. The future shape of civil defence is also indicated, in broad outline, in the defence white paper. This outline will be filled in as the preparation of the new plans proceeds, but the need for an effective system of civil defence is surely beyond dispute. It presents itself today in its noblest aspect, namely the Christian duty of helping fellow mortals in distress. Rescue, salvage and ambulance work have always been the core of civil defence, and no city, no family, nor any honourable man or woman can repudiate this duty, and accept from others help which they are not prepared to fit themselves to render in return. If war comes, great numbers may be relieved of their duty by death, but none must deny it as long as they live. If they do, they might perhaps be put in what is called Coventry. I am speaking of the tradition, and not of any particular locality. The argument which I have been endeavouring to unfold and consolidate gives us, in this island, an interlude. Let us not waste it. Let us hope we shall use it to augment, or at least to prolong, our security and that of mankind. But how? There are those who believe, 
or at any rate say, if we have the protection of the overwhelmingly powerful United States, we need not make the hydrogen bomb for ourselves, or build a fleet of bombers for its delivery. We can leave that to our friends across the ocean. Our contribution should be criticism of any unwise policy into which they may drift or plunge. We should throw our hearts and consciences into that. Personally, I cannot feel that we should have much influence over their policy or actions, wise or unwise, while we are largely dependent, as we are today, upon their protection. We, too, must possess substantial deterrent power of our own. We must also never allow, above all, I hold, the growing sense of unity and brotherhood between the United Kingdom and the United States, and throughout the English-speaking world, to be injured or retarded. Its maintenance, its stimulation, and its fortifying is one of the first duties of every person who wishes to see peace in the world, and wishes to see the survival of this country. To conclude, mercifully there is time and hope, if we combine patience and courage. All deterrents will improve and gain authority during the next ten years. By that time the deterrent may well reach its acme and reap its final reward. The day may dawn, when fair play, love for one's fellow men, respect for justice and freedom— will enable tormented generations to march forth, serene and triumphant, from the hideous epoch in which we have to dwell. Meanwhile, never flinch, never weary, never despair. End of speech. Recording by Ruth Golding. End of Selected House of Commons Speeches by Winston Churchill